0: So, as Dan said, my name is Natalie, um, which is basically the Afrikaans way to pronounce Natalie. Um, so, Nat or Natalie or whatever you feel like, um, that is me. Today, we are continuing on with our series Matter Matters, and we're up to part three. Um, so, we've been centered around this question that Paul asked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, asking, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that your body matters? So the first week, we kind of covered up a lot of history about how we got to this place where today, matter feels like it doesn't really matter. We really um, place a lot of emphasis on the spiritual realm of things and not so much on the physical. Um, And then last week, Dan talked about the word temple in this sentence um, and what it means that we're made in the image of the one God and that we are now the temple. So if you missed all that, please do go back and listen to the podcast. It is really good. Um, but today I want to take us another step onwards and look at what does it mean to be in a body, that our bodies are the temples. So would you stand with me, would you eat to, for the reading of Scripture? This is the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's an unspeakable Hebrew name for the Lord our God, as we just read. You might know it already. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh the Lord is one. The Jewish people understood this commandment to not take Yahweh's name in vain, a little bit different than we do today. We often take this to mean don't say, oh my God, or don't swear. And that is all good and fine. But to not take Yahweh's name in vain, as it was understood for centuries in Judaism, meant don't even speak the name. Don't ever in your lifetime pronounce this sacred name, Yahweh. This taught the Jewish people a foundational humility. By not even uttering the word, they could never assume that they could understand God. They could capture God. They could have them in their pockets. In written Hebrew, the word Yahweh also consists of these four consonants. Hebrew only has consonants, no vowels. But a good reader would know the sounds of the vowels and use them at the correct places when reading it. And here's the key. These four consonants are the only ones when read that don't allow you to use your tongue or your mouth. And it sounds kind of like this. The Hebrews understood that this God, this being, this magnificent Holy One was uncapturable in any form, even by our mouths. And more than that, He's available as the air in our lungs. We've been speaking His name ever since we were born. Here, O Israel, is one. D.H. Lawrence says this. You can do whatever you want with a belief, but an experience does something with you. You're not in control anymore. The experience is. I don't know about you, but it feels like we're at a deadlock in Western Christianity where we so often confess these systems of beliefs with our mouths, but we look exactly like the people outside of church we're quick to say that we understand God and we Christians yell across the aisle at each other all the time about who understands God's best. But yet our faith often remains largely in our heads. You may have come to the front of church one time and accepted Jesus in your heart. Or you may have gone to an epic Easter camp and given your lives to the Lord. You were deeply moved by the Spirit or by music or by a piece of poetry or whatever it was and you gave your life to Jesus And that is beautiful. But coming back to our real lives, to our jobs and our kids and our (laughs) in-laws, we so often struggle to let this belief live in our bodies, to see how the mundane matters of our lives really matter. An expert of the Torah came to Jesus um, and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he quoted the Shema when he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. See how that's a bit different? In the original it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. There's not even the mention of the word mind. That only came later with Greek philosophy. The ancient Hebrews understood that the mind is not actually a separate part of our human beingness, and our souls are not simply the ghost in the machine, with the mind as the driver. No, no, no. We are our bodies. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you would have seen the video we played on the word nefesh, which is the Hebrew word. For the word soul, but it doesn't refer to the thing that floats up to heaven when you die. It's the essence of the human being. I've started calling it the beingness of all things. We've lost this beingness. We need to recapture what it means to love the Lord our God with our flesh and bone, our skin and hormones, our joints and our nervous system where we know Christ in our daily, ordinary lives. We need a spirituality where we don't just know about Christ, but where we really know Christ. So, let's change gears a little bit. We left off our church history a couple of weeks ago with a church around the 6th century where Constantine has now legalised Christianity in Rome, People aren't being thrown to the lions anymore for following Jesus. Woohoo! But it is a church that cares a lot about saving souls for heaven when we die, absolving people of their sins, and building very big and beautiful, but very expensive cathedrals. And this is where I want to pick up the story around the sixth century. There was this guy called Anthony the Great. Anthony launched the movement of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. These were people who left their homes in the cities and went out to the desert seeking to go deeper with God. They were tired of the cultural Christianity of Rome and the wealth and the power status of the church, and they moved out of the cities to seek the sacrifice and the solitude of the desert. They were serious about pursuing God with their bodies especially in ways like fasting, silence, community, and long periods of prayer. They said, actually, my body has a lot to do with following God. And then fast forward to that picture at the bottom. Um, Monks are becoming... These people kind of often moved back into the cities then and morphed into becoming monasteries, um, practicing what they did in the desert back in the cities. And then these monasteries... We were good for a while, but kind of like the Israelites, they turned out to be not so good. Um, and they morphed into becoming very studious, um, trying to pin down these felt experiences in the desert, in books, and academia. The role models who were seen by the people as being closest to God were those guys with the books and the robes, or those guys, remember them, with the strange hair that we call the tonsure. Um, These were the people seen as being close to God. And somewhere along the line, we Christians developed this belief that our spirituality is not really related to our everyday lives, to our bodies, to normal hair, to our sexuality, to food, to wonderful sunshine. Our spirituality became practiced in our heads. And then fast forward another few centuries, and along came this guy. Oh, that picture is a bit blurry, isn't it? That's metaphorical. Um, (laughs) Francis of Assisi. He lived in the 12th century, and he started turning this idea that our minds are superior to our bodies on its head. He rejected the idea that um, Christianity should be lived out in monasteries, and he took it to the streets. He preached poverty and love to ordinary people living ordinary lives. And he famously said, what can you do to a man who owns nothing? You can't starve a fasting man. You can't steal from someone who has no money. You can't ruin someone who hates prestige. I am truly free. Saint Francis was also the patron saint of animals, famously preaching to the birds as he is there and caring deeply about all of creation. He preached a Christianity where God cared about the flowers, about the animals, about creation, against this backdrop of monks being studious in their rooms and reading books. And of course, when this guy, Francis of Assisi, died, the church did the one thing you would do for a man who spent his life um, preaching against poverty, preaching against um, prestige. And they built a massive church in his honor. In this huge basilica where St. Francis is buried, um, there's a small bronze statue of him inviting in the Holy Spirit. And instead of looking upwards as usual, he gazes longingly downwards. Francis understood that the Holy Spirit has in fact descended. That she is forever and always, first of all, here with us. Francis saw that the incarnation didn't start with Christ. It started with creation. It started with every tree and stone and animal. And that Christ then comes as the human incarnation. Christ has a body. John describes it and says The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Eugene Peterson so beautifully paraphrases it and says, The Word became flesh, and he moved into the neighborhood. God enters into creation again, this time as a man in Jesus. The newest revelation of God comes through a body. And that changes everything. Yahweh, the mysterious one, is no longer found out there. He comes to us and he is already here. And the beingness of all things. He is Emmanuel. When you see this, and when you see, I don't mean you intellectually agree with me. When you see this and you feel this in your beingness, then we join the place where the desert fathers and mothers were then we step into knowing God experientially. Richard Raw defines mysticism as simply knowing God through experience. It's a knowing that involves our whole beings, not just our heads. And don't get me wrong, our minds are great at helping us solve mathematic problems. By day, I'm an accountant, so the mind is great at helping me balance my debits and my credits and making sure all my clients pay their tax on time. All you tax avoiders in the room, you know who you are. I will find you. (laughs) But the mind is terrible at helping us really know God because it is calculative and critical. It's dualistic, either or in nature. And it doesn't allow us to really see this divine mystery of God. So let's explore this a bit further. We have an overload of information in our world. There's 500 hours of YouTube content uploaded every minute. 2,700 books published every day. Our news feeds are filled to the brim. And our minds are wonderful It looks through it all, it takes it all in, it sifts it through for us, it puts it into boxes. You might be going through a news feed going, oh, yep, I agree with this, don't agree with that. Ooh, that movie looks good, I should watch that. Mm, That doesn't look so good. Mm, Look at this random kid running into a wall. (laughs) Sounds familiar? We need our minds to do this and make sense of the world for us. But dualistic either-or thinking can only get us that far. Black or white? Tall or short? Is it lunchtime yet? But what about the tensions in life? What about suffering? Pain? Evil in this world? Things that we feel in our bones, but words always seem to fall short to describe them. We need a new mechanism for knowing these things. To know them within us. Because our minds alone cannot make sense of them. Let me give you some more examples. Human or divine? Both. Dead or alive? Both. The kingdom is here or is it still coming? Yes. The rules of logic don't quite agree with these statements, but yes, yet we confess them to be true. We can never describe the sacred God because we can never know him in either or thinking, so we have to use paradoxes. We try to put him into words, but it always falls short. We sing songs about him, but it never quite gets there. We cannot understand this great mystery, the creator of the universe with our heads alone. We cannot speak his name and put him in a box. So we have to also know him through our bodies. We have to breathe him in. Yeah. To know God in our bodies, we have to get out of our head somehow. We need a new way. And the Hebrews help us again. They have this word, yada, which means to know. And you can only really know someone if you have a personal and intimate relationship with them. It's not just to have met someone in passing and then talk to them about them later and say, Oh yeah, I know that guy. No, it's to know them and have a relationship with them. There's a reason in Genesis it says, Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. The Hebrews don't do knowing with their heads. We usually do it mentally, but for them, it's a physical thing. Knowing someone is having sex with them. It's carnal. It happens in our bodies, and it's transformative. You can't know someone and not be transformed by it. But how? How do we do this? How do we know God and be transformed by him and not just know about him? Well, we're in good company because the great church fathers of the centuries have wrestled with this too. Constantine wrote, oh, not Constantine, Augustine. He wrote in 580 saying, "How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self?" And Calvin said, "Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts: the knowledge of God and of ourselves." In his book, which many of you might have read, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro makes the point that we need emotional maturity alongside our walk with Jesus. He says, one of our greatest obstacles in knowing God is our own lack of self-knowledge, so we end up wearing a mask before God, ourselves, and other people. In his book, Pete uses the story of Jesus being driven out into the desert and looked forward to be tempted to show us these masks that we wear. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but he shows three false identities that Satan offers Jesus and each of us on the journey from our heads to our bodies. And these are, I am what I do, I am what I have, and I am what others think. First, Satan asked Jesus and each of us, turn these stones into bread. Are you constantly trying to prove your worth by what you're doing? Next, he says, You can all of this, you can have all of this if you worship me, Jesus. Asking us, do you love anything more than God? And third, he asked if Jesus takes him up to the highest mountain and says, Throw yourself down. Do you worship other people's admiration more than God? After 2020, we're all very familiar with masks. It's something really annoying that you have to put on that keeps you safe, but it also keeps you from connection. It keeps you trapped with your own breath. It's lonely. Which one of these are yours? Many of us will have one that's our default one when we feel insecure and we put them on to feel safe. We shouldn't think that because Jesus was divine that it was easy for him to resist these temptations and go back and read them again and look for. Dying to ourselves is incredibly difficult. Saying no to our control mechanisms is hard. And you may be thinking, okay, okay, I know my mask here, but what's all this got to do with my body? Well, these masks we have are false identities that we put on that keeps us us stuck in our heads. Somewhere maybe in the regrettable past or the romanticised future. And we can only take them off by stepping into our very present bodies. Otherwise we'll forever be preoccupied with mental time travel. And we'll never get to experience our very present God. You can't reach for control and surrender at the same time. You can't protect yourself from COVID and kiss someone at the same time. To get out of our heads, we need to understand what our natural tendencies are of grabbing control back from God, ways of putting Him back in our pockets, ways of closing our lips when we say the sacred name, Yahweh. So here's a few acid tests for each of these masks. And give yourself lots of grace because these things are tender and the one that hurts most is probably yours. Sorry. I am what I do. Performance. Are you grasping for control by working very long hours? Are you a perfectionist that's always improving everything and everyone around you? To take off this mask, you're invited to step out of your head and into your body and rest. Sit still and do nothing while the work is not done. Some of you are shuddering. (laughs) Or are you taking back control from God by compulsively buying stuff? Did you know that online shopping skyrocketed during COVID when we were all in isolation? Are you often jealous of other people having more than you? Maybe to own that and step out of your head, you're invited to start with giving some physical stuff away, giving some money away on a regular basis to release that control of the false security of wealth. Or maybe... Your mask of control is your social group. You need people to like you. And you obsess about the small interactions interactions in your head over and over again. This one's definitely mine. I do this all the time. Probably do this after this talk. (laughs) To take off this mask, we're invited to start hanging out with people who don't maybe look like us or agree with us or necessarily make us feel good. People who it's hard to be around. Notice how each of these masks has a physical response. Taking them off requires vulnerability, but it's also the only true way to connection and love. Jesus says this, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says, you have to die before you die. He teaches us this is the only way to really live. And for most people, this happens through one of two ways. Through death or suffering. It's only these two things that are usually strong enough to help us break through these false identities and take off the masks. To set us free to live in this moment. Because you can't live in your head with suffering. It forces you back into the now. Ask anyone who's lost someone or has experienced deep physical pain. Our bodies can't live in the future. They can only live in the right now, second after second, breath after breath. (sighs) To recapture a holistic spirituality, we're invited to take our masks off and step into what is right now. You talk to any hospice worker, and they'll tell you this is true. And you will know this. When people are on their deathbeds, their popularity doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they owned or who liked them. Love matters. They agree. (laughs) There's a true self within us that is untouchable, unheard by any of these false identities, and it's this Christ self that is in you deeply true and free paul put it like this your old life is dead your new life which is your real life even though invisible to spectators is with christ and god he is your life For the ancient Greco-Roman world, it was absolutely unacceptable that God could humiliate himself so much as to take on flesh. But Paul says, no, 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 our good, resurrected Christ bodies can come alive. We are free, free from the shackles of sin, free from our masks, free from the mental change that we're trapped in. We ourselves are incarnate, just like Jesus was incarnate. Christ has risen up in us. Isn't that gospel? Isn't that good news? That's, thank you. <laughs> That's what the incarnation means. There is no spiritual life and physical life. There is only life. There's only Emmanuel, God with us, in us, through us, through our bodies. But to get there, we have to die to ourselves. For a while now, I have been walking a road with depression. And very often, I'm triggered by something, and my thoughts will start spiraling, and it can get very dark very fast. But the incarnation means that Christ knows suffering, that He knows me deeply that woven within my and your DNA is beauty and sorrow mixed together. And they can coexist there, and it is okay. Maybe many of you think of Jesus and you see this. Christ triumphant. The Christ that is powerful, strong, and in control. A divine and awesome Christ. I've come to see Jesus much more like this. It's Christ's suffering. His body is heavy, slumping under its weight. His wounds are clear. Christ is also a hurting, suffering man. I want to invite you this morning to look at the crucifixion of Christ as human and ask what that means for you. How do you move towards this Christ and become embodied? What do you need to surrender to? For some of you, a first step to becoming embodied might be sitting with your emotions. You may not give yourself permission to feel your feelings. Because if you're taught that there are good and bad feelings and that somehow your feelings are not spiritual, and if you can only focus on the good stuff, then you're better at following Jesus. Maybe if one of those false identities has brought some stuff up for you. Do you need to allow yourself to feel your anger today? Or your hurt? Or your resentment? Maybe you need to sign up for counselling And stop putting off working through your emotions and honor your body. Or maybe you're full of apathy. You're an analytical thinker who struggles to see the value in this image. You go through life very stoically, by no mistake of your own. It's just how you're wired. I want to challenge you to surrender your apathy today. Find something that gets you out of your head and into your body. And there's lots of things, something like contemplation or yoga, volunteer at Gratis or the city mission, go visit a retirement home, do some exercise or ask someone who looks different from you about their life experience and don't give them any feedback. Just listen. Teach your body how to value your mind, how to value your body. And slowly your heart will wake up too. Or finally, maybe you're in the third category. You're like me. You're an ESFP on the Myers Briggs or a four or a two on the Enneagram. And you feel everything very deeply. Your senses are deeply in touch with God, but your life is often a roller coaster of emotions and thoughts. Maybe surrendering looks different for you today. Maybe honoring your body might look like bringing some kind of rhythm of fasting into your life. Silence and solitude. Resisting the control that your emotions have over you. We all have different personalities and needs, and that is part of being the beauty of the church together. But rather than only a community of thinkers, I want to call us to become a holistic people, where we move to becoming more and more like Christ by surrendering our whole beings. And maybe none of those practices resonated, and that's okay. There are a means to an end, a finger pointing to the moon, in whatever stage of life or personality you are, to know God deeper. To find your means. But remember, our end goal, our telos is this. Do you know the great lover of your soul? Or do you know about him? Have you surrendered your whole mind, body, and being to the one who so longs to know you?